least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas who I and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is too much if we reap material things from you. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for the things that you'll bring us, Lord, and show us and show our hearts and help us to have have ready hearts to hear your word, Lord. Um, help us be prepared to hear what you'd have for us. Help us have still and calm hearts. Um, be a blessing on all of us this week and be, be with Nathan as he brings the message today. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, apologies to our kids this morning. We're not going to do the kid song. Um, Mr. Adams does such a good job at that. Who would want to take that away, right? Um, Adam is, uh, he called us this morning and, and was not feeling well. He thinks he has a kidney stone. He's gone to the ER. Um, and so just pray for him and Shauna as they try to figure out what's going on with him. Um, and I will post an update as I, as I get information just about that. Um, also, I want to say thank you to our mothers. You are a, a treasure to us as a church. Um, and I speak not only to physical motherhood, but spiritual motherhood. So many of you ladies are spiritual mothers to one another. And our guides, and um, and I'm very thankful for that to see that as a pastor, and also for your love for your children, your physical, biological children, your adopted children, in the way that you display godliness in your home, and um, it, it it is such a treasure to us as elders to see those things displayed. Um, it's also a treasure to me as a father of, of young women that will one day be mothers that I know have seen 
a healthy model of motherhood displayed in their church. And uh, what a, a great lesson, what a great time, what a great application of the scripture that says older women teach the younger women. And I'm so very thankful for y'all. So um, I didn't get y'all all gifts. I apologize. Um, but please know we love you. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9 uh, is our passage today. It is not a Mother's Day passage. <laughs> so... Um, as a matter of fact, it's, an, it's kind of an awkward passage for me to preach today. And so it's one of those, those passages where you get to it and you're like, okay, Lord, we have committed ourselves to expository preaching. Uh, we do not turn away from the next passage that comes our way. Um, it is helpful and needed for the church. Um, but the title of the sermon today is entitled uh, Supporting the Shepherds. 20 years ago, my wife and I, uh, set out on a, a journey. I was uh, faithfully pursuing a world of finance and banking. I had been serving in banks for over six years. Uh, I had just recently got married and, and came to my wife and said, um, I think the Lord is calling me to be in ministry. Um, it was a, uh, a fun conversation, a multiple conversations to have. And uh, by God's grace, uh, he began to show us that this is what he wanted us to do. And so it has been a joy for me because I love the church and I love God's word and I love to shepherd God's people. And Adam and Stuart as well, you can see the love that we have um, for Christ and the way that we try, in the way that we try to shepherd you. Um, the beauty of that is, is that we don't just do this out of love, but we also get to get paid. We, got to, we get to be paid for that. And that is a bonus for us. Um, because ultimately we would do this for free. Um, up until two years ago, Stuart was doing it for free. <laughs> and he does it out of a love for, for you guys. And he does it out of a love not because he's trying to, to get rich, but because he loves the church. And, and so we want, to, um, we want to be very faithful to what we've been called to do. But this passage is, is awkward because it has to do with uh, me in particular and in our elders uh, being financially supported by the church. So it's like that that conversation you have with your boss where you go in and, and you say, hey, listen, I really feel like I need a raise. That's not an easy conversation to have, okay? And I just want you to know I'm, I'm not asking for that today, okay? I'm just sharing with you God's word, and I hope that you will see and understand that. Um, this is Paul's instruction for the church. It's in his instruction for the church because as we've learned in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he has gone into Christian liberty, talking about Christian liberty. And in that liberty, he is dealing with the freedom that we have because Christ has saved his people from their sins. We are no longer bound, but we are free. There is a freedom from the, um, the, the, the wages of sin. There's a freedom from the burden of some merit-based acceptance before God. And with that comes liberty. 
You should never in your Christian life feel burdened by the things that God calls you to do. Are they difficult? Yes. Are they a burden? No. Jesus bore the burden. That burden was placed upon Him. And therefore, we are free to live and and, and serve Him and worship Him in great ways. But the problem is, is that sometimes our liberty... That, that flag of Christian liberty that is planted is oftentimes planted in a way on top of the, the, the difficulties and the struggles of our Christian brothers and sisters. In other words, without love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are doing Christian liberty wrong. Because we need to be always focused on the concerns of others, the difficulties and the struggles and the weaknesses of other people. So we may exercise our freedom in Christ as long as we are seeking to serve others and not be served. Because love is a prerequisite for Christian liberty. And this is what Paul is dealing with. Um, In chapter 8, as he looked at meat offered to idols, and there were uh, people in the Corinthian church that were, um, they were weak in their faith, and they were struggling with this old lifestyle where they weren't, when they went to the market and they bought meat, they knew in their pagan religion that that meat had some form of uh, of a tie or connection to demons or, or in their eyes, uh, their God. That they were sharing in and partaking the meat of, uh, that was offered onto the idol, and therefore they were, in, they, in their pagan religion, connecting to that God. Well, as they came to faith in Christ, they began to now worry and go, is this something that I should even do? Should I even partake in this meat? And those that mature in the faith knew that that meat was just meat. That there was no reason to refrain from such a thing. But for weaker Christians, it was a struggle. And it was such a struggle that weaker Christians would see mature Christians possibly buying that meat in the marketplace and being really upset about it. And really challenged in their own faith. Is that right? Should we be doing this? So on and so forth. We see similar situations in the church today. So Paul in chapter 8 is dealing with this idea of Christian liberty. Matter of fact, he kind of summarizes it for us in chapter 8 verse 11. He says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for uh, whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's a definitive statement to say it's, it's better for me to never have meat again, this particular meat, if it causes my brothers to stumble. I would rather show them love than have a juicy steak. That's kind of where he's going. Well, in chapter 9... He's going to continue talking about this freedom that we have. And he's going to use the word, his rights. Because with freedom, we have rights. Rights to do certain things, right? And with those rights, Paul is going to expound upon his rights as an apostle. Hey, I'm an apostle. I'm a leader in the early church. And I have these rights that are given to me by the Lord. 
But his argument's going to be, even though I have these rights, I'm not going to exercise them. Bringing a further powerful statement upon this issue of Christian liberty. And it just so happens that the argument that he makes has to do with the way in which the church financially supports the leadership. Okay? He's basically saying, listen, I have the right to be provided for as a leader in the church. And what he's going to finally get to, and we're not going to get to this statement today, but what, he, what he's going to finally get to is, but I'm not going to exercise that right for the sake of the gospel. Okay? But today we're going to look at the biblical principle of supporting our shepherds. What does it mean to support our shepherds? What does it mean to care for the needs of the leadership in our church as a way of worship before the Lord Jesus? So today, first, we're going to look at the qualifications. Paul begins by really... um, He wants to give evidence... Because he's being challenged as an apostle. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free, he asks? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If, I, if, if to others I am not an apostle, he says, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul begins to qualify himself as a leader. Particularly in the early church, you had first apostles, and then you had the elders that were called as the churches were established. You might call those people pastors, that's fine. You can call them elders or pastors or or bishops or overseers. Those are all synonymous words used in the Bible. But it started with the apostles. And these apostles, we know, were the disciples that walked with Christ. And as they walked with Christ, they were, um, they were privy to the, the, the miraculous work of Christ throughout His ministry. But particularly, they were considered apostles. They were qualified as apostles, most particularly because they saw Christ rise. They, they saw Him as the risen Lord. They weren't there at the resurrection, most of them. They were were running afraid and fearful. But Jesus appeared to them. And appearing to them was one of the prerequisites for apostleship. That they saw the risen Christ. Now the Bible tells us that over 500 witnesses were able to see the risen Christ. But these in particular were not just random people that followed Jesus. These were the disciples that Jesus called the apostles who were given the Holy Spirit and called to lead the church into the beginning uh, foundation of the early church, uh, the birth of the early church. The, The word apostle literally means the sent ones. They were the ones who were sent out by Christ. They witnessed his resurrection. And now what Paul is saying is that he has received criticism for his own qualification as a leader. And this happens in ministry, right? People want to be skeptics. They want to criticize the leadership. 
But then other people want to just hold leadership accountable. And there's nothing wrong with holding leadership accountable to the qualifications that the Lord has set upon them. Now, don't don't mishear me. The qualifications that the Lord has set upon leadership, not the qualifications that you set upon leadership. And there's a difference. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus is the qualification that the Lord places on church leaders in the same way that the ones who saw the risen Christ, who were sent out by the Lord Jesus, were qualified as apostles, pastors, elders of the church today follow what's written in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. Those are our qualifications. We are not apostles. We are pastors. We are elders. We are overseers. We are shepherds. And yet the qualification is important because the qualification then identifies and affirms any support that the church might give toward us. So the qualification is the foundation of it. Has the Lord placed this calling upon this brother's life to lead the church? Well, for Paul, we see examples where the Lord appeared to Paul. Actually, three different times we see examples in Paul's life where he experienced the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You'll remember that Paul never met or met Jesus while he was still called Saul that we know of. There was never an interaction, never an encounter. When we see Saul rise up in the, in the New Testament early church time, it's him persecuting the church. Jesus has already risen. He's already ascended into heaven. And there this man, Saul, is a, a, a Jewish a zealot and, and leader in the Jewish ranks that is persecuting Christians for blasphemy. He's throwing them into prison. Some are being murdered, such as Stephen. And there on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, Paul has his first encounter with Jesus. Jesus appears to him in this dramatic conversion story where Paul encounters the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved. The second encounter comes a few years later. Shortly after Paul's conversion, he, we're told that he ministers in the area of Damascus, and then he goes to a place called Arabia for three years. And after he is in Arabia, he comes back to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he meets with Peter, and in Acts chapter 22, we're told that the Lord appeared to Paul after putting him in a trance and told him to get out of Jerusalem quickly. Protecting Paul, putting a watch guard over Paul, telling him, warning him to flee the city. That's the second vision or, or encounter with Christ. And then finally, a third vision with Paul comes toward the end of Paul's ministry, recorded in Acts chapter 23 when he's defending himself before the Jerusalem council. And we're told in Acts chapter 23 that the Lord Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him to be courageous and informed him that his ministry would go beyond Jerusalem also to Rome. So there Paul is encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these appearances... All these appearances are affirmations of 
Paul's ministry. Now, Christian leadership today in the church, we don't have visions of the risen Christ. That's not a qualification that's placed upon us. That's why we're not apostles. We are called to be believers. We are called to not be new converts, but mature in the faith. We have these character qualifications, and they're all very essential. And they're, and they're the prerequisite for the ways in which the church would affirm us as leaders and therefore provide whatever means and provision that we might have as its leadership. But notice not only a calling from the Lord, but a second quality. The second quality, first being the calling of the Lord, where Paul meets with the Lord, and, and for us it's just a, a desire that the Lord gives us to be in ministry, an affirmation of other believers looking in our lives and affirming a, a, a gifting and, and this desire to be true. But the second quality is effectiveness in the Lord's work. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says to the Corinthians, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So the second qualification that, Peter, that Paul says here is not only did the Lord call him and affirm him as an apostle, but the very effectiveness that the Corinthian church existed was a, an evidence that Paul was doing what the Lord had called him to do. So church, what we're doing is we're laying out a foundation here that we have to understand as a church when we come to, let's say, call a new leader of the church, an elder, and we call them to to serve us and to teach us and to guide us. Well, we have these qualifications from God's Word. What What does the Lord require of you, sir? What characteristic qualities... Well, let me ask you other questions. For example, how, how have you been effective in ministry? What has the Lord done to use you in such ministry? Well, this is my first church. I've never been in, in full-time gospel ministry. That's not what I'm asking you, sir. This is an interview, by the way. This is a... Because if I'm going to call an elder to, to serve alongside myself and Stuart and Adam, and, and I get an answer such as, well, I, uh, this is my first opportunity. No, because we are constantly ministering for the Lord. So the evidence is in the effectiveness of a, of a person who is being called to elder is already present. Some of you in here, some of you men in here today may one day be elders in this church or other churches. And it's only because you are already serving. You are already qualified because of the effectiveness of what the Lord is doing in you. In the way that you proclaim the gospel. In the way that you make disciples. In the way that you shepherd and love people. We talked about deacons and calling deacons. One of the things I think I said, I meant to say it if I didn't say it. One of the qualifications that we're looking for in deacons is people that already serve. Not, oh, I'd like to nominate so-and-so, and I hope that once he's nominated, he'll go and start serving the church body. No, we're looking for people that are already walking in the door going, how can I help? How can I be of a service to you so that you can focus on other spiritual things? It's the same quality. 
Paul is saying that the church of Corinth and all the other churches, that the very existence that they are there is a sign or a seal that God has called him to be an apostle and is using him effectively in the church. That is the qualification that Paul lays forth. And so what does this mean for us? First, it means that I am accountable to you. Adam and Stuart are accountable to you according to what the Word of God says. That is the qualifications that we must continually meet. In 2014, when we met for the first time as a church, we propositioned the idea of this church being formed with the idea that that these would be the leaders. And at that time, those that were present that were considering uh, being a part of this, this, this church body, in all those decisions we had to make, first had to say, are these men qualified? Because we have seen the effects of unqualified men leading the church. And it is disastrous. And praise be to God, the, the, the members of Redemption at that time saw fit to, to call myself and, and Stuart... Later, uh, or and David Wagner, and then later Adam and, and David Johnson, as qualified men to lead you spiritually as shepherds. We must be qualified, and you must hold us accountable to those qualifications continually. That is your duty, that is your responsibility. Secondly, Paul then goes to the bulk of his argument in verses 3 through 14 and goes into provision for leadership. Not only qualification for leadership, but provision. And as he gives provision or talks about provision, he's talking about the right that he has to be uh, financially cared for, that his needs would be met by the churches. And he wants to to lay this argument out in a very uh, rational and logical way. So he gives a, a whole lot of examples, a multitude of examples that we can go, oh, I see this all over the world as, as proof of what we do as a human race, as a human uh, group of people, as we care for those who help us. And he gives us a couple. First, some worldly examples in verses 3 through 7. Chapter 9, verses 3 through 7. Look what he says. He goes, my defense is to those who examine me in this. Do I not have a right to eat and drink? Do I not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barab or Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now he starts with asking some really important questions. In giving his defense, and he's obviously again facing critics... And he's talking about his Christian liberty and his right to certain things as an apostle... And the first couple questions that he asks is about financial support. Do I not have a right to eat and drink? 
In other words, if I am truly called by God to be an apostle, do I not have a right to have my needs so that I might be fed, so that I might have something to drink, be met by the church? Be met by God's people. He goes even further. Not only his personal provision, but his family provision. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now we know that Paul wasn't married. Most people believe he was widowed. He talks about his singleness in previous chapters. We've already looked at that. But the question is rhetorical in a sense where he's saying, but do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Now he's not asking the church permission to take along a wife if he had one. He mentions that the brothers of the Lord, most likely James and Jude, and of course Peter, who has a wife, and other apostles who were married, but he's speaking in such a way to say, do I not have a right to bring along my wife in my ministry as, a, as a, a leader in the church so that she might be taken care of financially as well. So what he's talking about here is the need for the church to consider that provision for leadership is, should be done in such a way that it involves caring for the church leaders and caring for the church leaders' families. He asks another question, verse 6, Or do I only, Barnabas and I, have a right to refrain from working? So here he's calling out then the idea that as the leaders of the church, the, the idea, the, 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 the main focus should be on those leaders being able to focus on ministry and refrain from doing work outside of the church. Now he's talking in idealistic standards here. Okay, and we're going to get to that. We're going to break that down a little bit. But the idea, the general principle is that the church would be such uh, of a spirit of generosity and kindness that they would take care of the needs of their leaders. And so he gives a couple worldly examples. He talks about the soldier. He talks about the farmer. He talks about the shepherd. And he gives three examples. The soldier doesn't have a night job. The farmer usually doesn't have to go and work at Home Depot after he's plowing the fields. No, they are taking and partaking in the very things in which they produce. They are earning their living for what they do. The soldier serving and being taken care of, the farmer and the shepherd. Those are worldly examples. These examples give us clarity That the focus of the church in caring for its leader is to do so in such a way that their needs are taken care of so they are focused on the ministry of the gospel. Now for those of you that are new to redemption, that is not the case for us as elders. Now, we are not seeking to be unbiblical here. We are striving for this very thing as a church. If there is a time, by God's grace, that He fills this church in such a way with tithes and offering and generosity so that myself and the other elders don't have to work another job, we will gladly 
receive that. We know that that is a goal for ourselves and a goal for you all. That is the principle that we strive for. But I want you to consider, and we'll look at this more in a second, I want you to consider the reality that that is never a goal in some churches. In some churches, there is a greater priority on buildings than people. And when our priority is on the building instead of the people, we're like, we would love beautiful stained glass and we would love these really comfortable pews and cold air condition as long as we don't have to pay our pastors in such a way that they have to go and get another job. They can go get a part-time job. We can have a fat mortgage. That is what we have avoided from the beginning. We are not going to be a church in such a way that we are not going to we are, we are not going to prioritize other things outside of what the, the, the Lord commands us to do, such as uh, providing for the needs of the leadership. If farmers have it, if soldiers have it, if shepherds have it, then the Lord's servants should have it. And so Paul moves then to biblical examples. He's given us these worldly examples. Those basic common ideas, but now he goes into the Scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, and says, hey, this is not just a worldly concept that we see all throughout the world. This is a biblical concept that the Lord commands us. This is what he says in verse 8. I'm not speaking things according to human judgment, am I? Does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he says in rebuttal, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Paul then comments in the commentary, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Those are valid arguments. Let's break those down. First of all, what does the Old Testament teach us about this concept? Well, it teaches us to go back to the Old Testament Scriptures and see that this was a practice that the Lord has been instilling throughout His people throughout their history. We look at uh, Paul's quote here in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 9. How you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. You would literally allow the the very beast that is producing the the heavy load of the work of of tilling the field and and planting the crops and, and harvesting the crops to literally keep the muzzle off of him so that he may partake of the share of the harvest and be fed and cared for. And Paul's argument or his question is this. Doesn't he, he's not saying the Lord doesn't care about the ox. Obviously, the this is an an issue of the way in which we care for the people and the things that serve. How do we care for them? How are we treating them? A farmer refraining from feeding his beasts is an attitude of greed. And hatefulness. Oh, I'm not going to feed this beast. 
This is a worthless animal. I need, to, I need to make as much money as I can from this crop. That's the attitude of greed and hatefulness. And as I said, this is an attitude that I think Paul is truly speaking to in these critics that are challenging his apostleship, possibly challenging the support that should be sent to him or that was sent to him. An attitude which resonates in greed. A church in this world that doesn't want to properly care for its pastors financially is a church that is greedy. It's a church seeking to accumulate wealth, not spend it appropriately on the greatest needs of the church, including caring for the shepherds. Let me give you another passage, Numbers chapter 18. This is a a practice in the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. The Lord commands Aaron and and the priests... In verse, chapter 18, verse 8 through 10, he says, now, I beho- now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings. Even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, I have given them to you as a, po- a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. This shall be yours from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, even every grain offering and every sin offering and every guilt offering, which they shall render to me, shall be most holy for you and your sons. As the most holy gifts you shall eat, every male shall eat it, it shall be holy to you. So this isn't just a worldly example. This is the the way in which God orchestrated and organized the, temp- the Old Testament Levitical system in the temple. As people would bring their gifts, the grain offering and the burnt offering and, and these different offerings, this system of tithing from the people that fell upon the priests to serve them as mediators between them and God, the priests benefited from that gift. They received a portion of it for themselves and, as it says, for their families or their sons. This is the way in which God provided the needs of the Levites. One commentator from the New Bible Commentary writes, The tithing system is logical, he says. Levi would not possess land in Canaan to cultivate and farm. Instead, God would use their inheritance, the people of Israel... And they would serve him without distraction who is being supported by tithes. So this commentator breaks it down. He says, 12 tribes, over 600,000 men, each bringing their tithes and offerings to maintain some 22,000 Levites who serve the temple. And then those Levites who received land freely and thus paid their tithes from what God had given. In return, the Levites would bring their tithes to the Lord, and those tithes went to the family of Aaron, who would take their portion. So what you see is a cycle of the, of the Jews as a whole, and the families of Israel providing for the Levites, and the Levites providing for the family of Aaron, and all of God's servants were taken care of in generosity. And so Paul gives us these examples. He says they did it in the temple. 
We see this in the Old Testament law, but he also points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? That's the Old Testament. Now verse 14, the New Testament. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now the New Testament. Same principle, same application. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Jesus has these disciples... He sends them out on the journey to do what? Minister the gospel to the region. In Matthew's account, which I think is the most uh, descriptive, reads like this, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach, there's their ministry saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Again, the ministry of the apostles or the disciples of that time. And then he says, freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey, for even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Or as Paul will quote, the worker is worthy of his wages. So now Paul's going to the New Testament. Here's a New Testament example from the very mouth of the Lord Jesus who sends out his disciples and says, you're going to go do ministry and you're not going to take anything with you. No provisions. Very simplistic. Going out and doing what? Trusting in the faithfulness of the Lord to provide your needs. Not worrying. Not being afraid. What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? The providence of the Lord will direct the kindness and the generosity of people in such a way that their needs would be taken care of. They had no reason to fear. And so all of these examples, we are as a church challenged to give faithfully to the Lord back what He has given to us. This is our spiritual act of worship to to serve the Lord with gladness, to give faithfully back a portion of what He has already given to us by His grace. And in doing so, a portion of those those gifts, which we call the tithe, are used to provide the the means the provisional needs of the shepherds. This is the way that this church has done it from the beginning. They have been a continual blessing to my family, to the the Grays, and to the Johnsons, and to the Wagners, and to the other Johnsons. We have provided different means to help them I myself have benefited the most as someone who has been paid as a staff member from the very beginning. As the lead elder of this church. And our family is thankful. And day by day and week by week, we had to practice the very things that the disciples had to practice, trusting the Lord that He's going to provide in every situation. 
Because in the end, and I'll close with this, shepherds don't shepherd for money. We just don't. Listen, I like money as much as the next guy. But the day that I have a love for money is the day that I am disqualified as an elder. That's what 1 Timothy says. That my qualification as an elder is not to have a love for money. It doesn't mean that I don't want money. Money is what provides for my family. But a greediness to shepherd you in order to get rich, to fill my pockets and my wallets full of wealth, that's not what I'm here to do. Matter of fact, this is what he says, and this will be, be his argument when we discuss this next in chapter 9, verse 12. He says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul says, Ultimately, whether it's food offered to idols, I'd rather not eat meat in order not to offend. If it comes to my rights to be provided for as a leader of the church, I'd rather refuse those rights if, it, if it's a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his argument. That in the end, money doesn't stand in the way of us serving the Lord as long as money is not standing in the way of you serving the Lord. Of you being faithful. Because in the end, the blessings that we reap is the experiences that we have of seeing people transformed by the gospel, of marriages strengthened, of children growing up and believing in Christ. We choose to do these things because the Lord has called us to do it and we would be unhappy doing anything else. And so as we close in this very unique application for the church, we challenge ourselves then, we should challenge ourselves in our own faithfulness. Faithfulness to give. Faithfulness to serve. If you want to serve in particular leadership in the church, are you qualified to serve? Because as a church body that is headed up by the Lord Jesus Himself, our goal and our purpose is never to put someone in leadership that is unqualified. That is an attack against the Christ Himself. Because this is His church. I'm challenged as a shepherd to be faithful. To be faithful to give. It is a unique situation to literally tithe money each week or each month to the church that literally comes right back into my pocket. Like signing a dollar bill with my name on it only to receive it back. That's not the point. The point is, is that I give faithfully to the Lord as a believer regardless if I get anything back or not. I just so happen to get some back as a shepherd of this flock. I want to be faithful. And I give, and I hope that you give, with a faith that is founded in the sovereignty of God. A faith that overcomes economics at times. 
That you're faithful to give beyond the circumstances of your life. I know, I've been there. Money gets tight. We're not a church that passes the plate. It's a box that sits here every day. Your conscience and your obedience to the Lord drives you to this box to give. It drives you to the website to hit the donate button. So that you understand your faithfulness. So that the Lord is between you and Him as a cheerful giver. I don't even look at the church records on who gives. I don't want to know. What I know is, is that the Lord will convict a heart to be faithful as an act of worship. Are you being faithful? As I conclude, I will say again, the gratefulness that we have, my family has, to the Lord, that He has allowed me to be a minister of the gospel and for my family to have the provision that it's, that it's needed over these 20 years. To do this for free is a joy. And I'm thankful for it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God.